radical secular podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions, and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Christoph Defoe. Today, we have a special guest we'll be talking to. His name is Andrew Sweet. He is a very promising new American science fiction author. He's here to talk about his prescient and socially salient book, Models and Citizens, released earlier this year. We'll also talk to him about his upcoming release, Bodhi Rising, which will be out by the time this show airs. But first, we'll do a brief news segment in which we talk about the religious fervor that's been sweeping America's political landscape. Even at a time when overall religious observance in the United States has been dropping dramatically, as we talk about on the Radical Secular in almost every episode, there's a strong connection between changing population demographics, rising secularism in American society, and an almost feverish last-ditch attempt by white Christian conservatives to throw a wrench in the works and stop forward progress, which we here on this show, of course, consider to be more social equity and less religion in public life. Before we get into that conversation, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And please check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. Okay, let's talk about our t-shirts. Christoph, what are you wearing? Ah, uh, yes, t-shirts. I am wearing the same t-shirt I wore last week, although it is clean. Um, it's, <laughs> it's not like, it's not right the same grossy sweat, but whatever, I'm wearing the same shirt. It's my Black Power shirt. And I'm, I'm wearing it again because I am pissed off. I was pissed off this week, man. I was pissed off at white people. I was pissed off at liberals. I was pissed off. And the George Floyd anniversary was this week. It was an emotionally turbulent week for me on that front for a host of reasons. But I felt that in reclaiming my power, reclaiming my my time, I think it, is, it, it was important for me to wear this shirt again, I, even though it's not only a retread, but a uh, two-week retread. But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> that's where I'm wearing my shirt. What do you got today, Sean? Well, that's good in my book, any week you want to wear it. So uh, <laughs> what I have today is my treason shirt. And mm -hmm. specifically this week, I needed, I've worn this before, but I haven't worn it since uh, the former guy's been out of office. And What's going on this week is that the treason has been transferred from the Oval Office now into Congress. And the party Sorry. is fully now Trumpian, is fully activated as an internal kind of what I would call a, an anti-democratic terror organization in our country that is, they don't care about what's right. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about elections. They just care about power. So That's we it. saw treason happening today as the one six bipartisan commission went down in flames due to the filibuster. And I mean, it's just, it's just one problem after the other. It doesn't stop. I mean, the filibuster can block anything already. Even the 50 Republicans represent 40 million less people than the 50 Democrats as it is. And then now you got to get 60. So we are living in minority rule and these senators committed treason today. That's yeah, the end of it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the astonishing turnaround from those same people, right? You had people coming on the floor and talking about how this was not a insurrection, that this was not violent, that there was no guns. And then you have, right, you see these memes and these pictures, right? Like on the other side of the meme, you have the guy 
cowering in fear behind a chair, right? So it just goes mm -hmm. to show how much bad faith is going on here, right? That you remember Lindsey Graham saying, oh, I'm done with Trump. I'm done mm -hmm. with Trump. And that, I mean, they know exactly what they're doing. And they also realize that whatever they can say, whatever they want, because we liberals will hear it and we'll be pissed off. But like the conservatives, they live in, an, in their own um, media ecosystem where the only words that ever reach a conservative Republican voters ears are things they want to hear. So yeah. Why not just say and do whatever you want? Right. And this is really the subject of our news today, because this week and in the past few weeks, several states have put into place extremely restrictive abortion laws. And that's what this is all about, by the way, is mm -hmm. it, I'm not going to list these laws here. You can look them up. It's just a depressing tide of anti-woman legislation. In a lot of states, abortion care is restricted so early now, even as early as six weeks in Texas, that by the time many women even know they're pregnant, it would be too late to do anything about it. And the focus seems to be in this whole thing on a fetal heartbeat, like they care about life. I mean, <laughs> this it's a totally unscientific criteria for the existence of any kind of viable life. And they don't care about people getting shot. So why are they worried about this little tiny heartbeat, right? So, and the other thing is that a human fetus at six weeks, it's the size of a small insect. It's not anything we would recognize. Mm -hmm. And it is a part of the woman's body. So it's not even the point I mean, whether it's a baby or, or not is not even the point. None of this right-wing nonsense is about the right to life or any of that. We went through all of these awful debates about fetal viability back in the early 70s. I remember it. I was 10 years old when Roe v. Wade was decided. And prior to that point, you never heard about it. Religious organizations barely even cared about abortion. And in the nearly 50 years since, they've developed their strategy of controlling female fertility into a national litmus test for membership in the Republican Party. These abortion bans are draconian laws designed to send women, and especially poor women, back at least half a century to a time of back alley abortions, dying from botched abortions, and painting women who do have abortions with a scarlet letter and throwing them in jail, or even worse, the death penalty. Now, make no mistake, even though these laws are a cynical calculation on the part of the GOP, these states actually do want them to go into effect. But for the moment, at least, many of them run afoul of Roe v. Wade and will be struck down but the states are counting on the ensuing court battles to help overturn Roe. And on Monday, May 17th, 2021, the Supreme Court announced that it would agree to review Mississippi's ban on the procedure after 15 weeks of pregnancy. So the battle lines are drawn. Whatever the Supreme Court decides is sure to become a factor in the 2022 elections and beyond. The court's 6-3 conservative majority appears poised to at the very least weaken Roe v. Wade and perhaps throw it out entirely. Now, I want to point out, as we've said many times before, that the American public had the opportunity to weigh in on this decision, and that opportunity was in 2016. A Hillary Clinton presidency would have given us a 6-3 liberal court instead of a 6-3 conservative court, and Roe v. Wade would have been safe for generations. The mistake Americans made by electing Donald Trump is far deeper and farther reaching than many people realize, and the consequences will be felt for decades, regardless of who wins the White House. Christoph, can you talk for a minute or two about just how severe the implications of this conservative court could be for America's future? What other big decisions are looming? Oh, boy. You know, I've been really depressed about this. Uh, Jonathan Zucker, he came on the show uh, several weeks ago, and he wrote a really thoughtful piece about this, but really just expressing in his very thoughtful way, but expressing the anger 
and frustration with folks who thought that in 16 that it wasn't worth coming out to vote for Hillary Clinton, but her emails, right? All of this stuff. And here we are. Elections have consequences and they're not just two-year consequences or four-year consequences or even eight-year consequences. Now we are dealing with generational consequences, right? Mm -hmm. And so to comment specifically on this, oh, you know, I wanted to point out quickly is that if we talk about how a lot on the left, how Republicans don't really care about life at all, right? I mean, like they say yeah. it's right to life, but it really has nothing to do with that. Their argument would say that, this, and this, it gets into another bad argument, which is the purity element, right? So like those unborn babies are innocent, right? Whereas right. somehow, as soon as they're born, they're not, and they deserve to not get healthcare and all this kind of stuff, but like they're innocent. And so that gets in this whole purity sort of argument, which is also deeply flawed, but that's also how they think about, they think about this way in terms of legal immigration as well, right? That these people don't yes. deserve rights because they have somehow violated the sanctity of the United States. And the concept is exactly the same, and it is deeply problematic on the right. It's a problem on the left too, but nothing like it is on the right. And so in particular, in, in, in terms of this SCOTUS case, this is deeply troubling. I don't think that they throw it out altogether. I think what they do is they let it die by a million paper cuts. What they do is they kick it back to the states and make it a state's rights thing. But what I see going forward in the future, Sean, is continuing to use this the, the, the court to curtail uh, theocracy, theocracy. That is what I think this court is about. And the Rehnquist court, for example, even the Roberts court was about corporate dominance. And that is a part of this too. But what I see from this court specifically, and I think we'll continue to see it, is theocracy. That is, I think, where we're, where we're headed. And that is deeply terrifying. Yeah. And we talked, of course, about this when we had our show on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and mm -hmm. her dying. We talked about a lot of this and we, we keep bringing it up because as we see, it's just like this steamroller. It's coming down the pike. It's moving very slowly. Uh, this isn't going to happen until next year. You know, we have a little bit of time, but it's inexorable. Like, what are you going to do? They're the highest court. They can either hear these cases or not hear these cases, whatever the case may be, to advance this agenda. And it seems to me that they are signaling and have signaled that it's going to be a worst case scenario. Yeah. And you talked about the cynical GOP folks that don't really care about abortion one way or the other, but they know that it is a huge wedge issue in the country that's been made a wedge issue in the country that, like you mentioned, was not a real thing that anybody gave a shit about like a hundred years ago, but now it's like the biggest issue and they're cynically using it, but they also know that for them and their mistresses and their wives and their girlfriends and their daughters, they will be able to get abortions, right? Yes. They'll be able to fly to New York, right? They'll be able to fly to Massachusetts. They'll be able to go to a different country if they want. And like you mentioned earlier, Sean, and I cannot stress this enough, it is the poor women who will bear the brunt of this. And it's always poor women who bear the brunt of this, always. Yeah, it's just scary stuff. It's also, I just wanted to respond a little bit to what you said about purity because mm -hmm. the essence of fascism is purity. Mm -hmm. Racial purity, gender purity, having men's only or whites only clubs or just, yeah, we don't want those dirty, scummy people. And the further you go down the line, the browner and the more female you get. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. And gay, right? Like that is like the worst. That's the same. It's a concept. It's always the same. And that is, I'm glad that you made that connection, Sean, because I want people that are listening to get that connection is this purity issue is so fundamental to how the conservative thinks. I know this because like about how my dad thinks about this. I mean, even the church that we we're in, right? It was all mm -hmm. about purity and cleanliness. And, and this is their hang up about sex, right? Yep, it's, absolutely. It, it all comes down. That is a very important concept to understand, to try to understand the conservative mind.
mind. The part that a lot of people don't realize and think about is that this stuff never ends because no matter how pure you get, you can always be more pure. So true. Right. So, so there's true. always an excuse for, for taking it further and further and further. Yep. That's so true. So true. And, and it goes like the one drop blood rule, right? Like the spoiling of that purity by one little thing. And like you said, I mean, it's a, it is a goal that is necessarily unattainable. It, you can basically just keep going indefinitely uh, until you basically have narrowed the group to ultimately just white men or wh whatever it is, whatever your flavor of purity is, right? Because Muslims have this problem as well. So it's not like it's just white people, white men. So or every group has it. And um, it's the same problem. What we have to recognize is that purity is just a route to power. That's all it is. Exactly. So, all right, well, I want to bring up another part of the sort of right-wing psychology, and this is there a sort of a difference in perception and tolerance between religious groups and non-religious groups in American society. And this is referred to as the inverted golden rule. Let me explain what that is. <clears throat> First, what's the golden rule? And that is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's sort of tangential to utilitarianism, which we support. Utilitarianism mm -hmm. strives to bring about the greatest good for the greatest number, and it requires an extension of social empathy because you want other people to be better. Treat others how you want to be treated. So usually the golden rule comes along with the expectation that others will extend that same tolerance, the same good wishes and goodwill to you as you extend to them. Fair play. And that also means you got to tolerate the things you don't like about them. You expect that in return, they're going to tolerate the things that they don't like about you, which is extremely fundamental to a free society or the social contract. Mm -hmm. I may not like the way someone else wears their hair or what <laughs> entertainment they consume or what they do in their bedroom, but I recognize that as a part of a free society, I have to look the other way. If I want to be able to wear my hair the way I want or be entertained the way I like or do what I want in the bedroom, fair is fair, right? That's right. I mean, it's the essence of secularism, right? It's like you do you, I do me, and we tolerate each other. I mean, like, and, and that's a big part of being a human being, right? Like, people are going to piss us off. In fact, most people I meet, I don't like, right? That is <laughs> like, that's normal. That is mm -hmm. like normal, right? Like, that is not just make me a bad person. It just means that. I mean, I only have a handful of friends for a reason, right? Because most people I'm like, ah, they're all right, but I don't love them. And, but I still have to tolerate them. And that is what, um, and you're going to talk about this going forward, but this is a problem on the right. They're not good at this. <laughs> they're not good, they're at, not this. good at it at all. And they, they just don't, they, they have a problem with granting dignity to those they disagree mm. with. Ah, great point. Human dignity, right? They consider that atheists and gay people or whatever have no dignity and they, and that therefore they shouldn't have rights. And so, and this is, there's also projection because, you know, when a particular social group like fundamentalist Christians, for example, who we know don't tolerate differences, they begin to move politically to pass legislation to curtail other people's rights like abortion mm -hmm. laws or anything, anti-gay laws, anti-trans laws, uh, the bathroom bills and bans on trans athletes. Okay. They begin to believe through this process that others have the same intentions to curtail their liberties. And we've long feared and expected that fundamentalist Christians have been trying to take over our government. And in fact, they have been, you know, just as we said at the Supreme Court and at every level, it's not even a question. And they're doing it really openly in many red states. Takeover is complete. When they have the trifecta of the governorship in both state houses, they always, and I mean always, pass draconian legislation to enshrine religious privileges into the law. And so far, it's really only been at the state level, and it's been largely checked at the federal level. 
But this conservative court is now trying to change that. And they're rewriting settled law at a furious pace on everything from employment to public health to grant undue privileges to religious groups. So that's what makes this conversation about the inverted golden rule relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what's really sort of scary in is, and I didn't realize this for a large portion of my life, but I certainly realize it now is that they, a lot of times on the right, they think that if we were in the same position, right? So they, like, for example, they think that people on the left don't really care about minorities. They're just cynically mm -hmm. using minorities to accumulate power, but they're saying that because that's literally how they think about it, right? So they think about the poor white folks that are in Appalachia that are in, oh, when I was down in Millville, New Jersey recently, like impoverished people with the Trump flags outside, by the way, mm -hmm. and Confederate flags, of course, but like impoverished people with obviously with nothing. And they're on the right, they don't care if those people can get abortions. They don't care if those people eat. They don't care about anything like that. They really no. are cynically using them for power. So they think that we're doing the same thing. Yeah, they're just projectionists. Actually. Exactly. They think, and it's like, no, we actually do care about these people. We really do. Believe it or not, we care. We may not do it perfectly. We may not even be good at it sometimes. We may fuck up, but we do care. And we are driving towards that goal. It's, it's really an astonishing difference. And I think it's important that as Americans and as progressives that we are really open and clear-eyed about that difference. Yeah, and, and the facts are that we are, okay? Because I'm yep. about to read from an, an article from the Religion in Public blog called The Inverted Golden Rule, Are Atheists as Intolerant as Evangelicals Think They Are? The answer is no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, the article is from 2019, but it's describing a longstanding trend that's been accelerating in the Trump and post-Trump era namely that religious groups are more and more subscribing to a feverish paranoia about atheists and secularists that doesn't remotely reflect the reality. And we here at the Radical Secular are precisely the group evangelicals are talking about, and we've been very clear on many occasions, we do not wanna see anyone's religious freedom taken away. We don't wanna curtail people's freedom of conscience. We don't wanna end religion on a wholesale basis. We just want to see religious beliefs and practices covered by the same rights and privileges and limitations as everyone else's behavior. So I'm gonna read from the article now, quote, would Democrats and atheists strip away conservative Christians' rights and liberties if they could? To find out, I turned to survey data I gathered with political scientists, Amanda Friesen and Anand Soke from September 20th to 26, 2016, conducted with a large national sample of 2,517 Americans online through Qualtrics panels and weighted to resemble the national adult population. This survey asked respondents about their feelings toward various groups and whether they would extend civil liberties to those groups. It is no secret that in general, these groups do not like each other on a feeling thermometer ranging from zero to 100, <laughs> white evangelicals on average rated atheists a 25, a level of dislike mirrored by how atheists and agnostics rated Christian fundamentalists at 24. I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> I do think that is funny. <laughs> we gave them one point lower than they gave us. <laughs> that's great. Okay, so that's the end of that quote. But in a secular society, it shouldn't matter how we feel about each other. Laws are laws, rights are rights, fair is fair. You don't have to like somebody. Um, but increasingly, it turns out that Christians would not only refuse to tolerate the behavior of atheists if they could, but they increasingly believe that atheists would do the same thing to them, which is to marginalize them and reduce them to second-class citizens. The article continues, quote, Respondents were asked whether their selected group should be allowed to give speeches in the community, teach in public schools, 
run for public office, and other liberties. Americans are not particularly tolerant of groups they dislike. Only 30% are willing to allow their disliked group three or more of such activities, which is, I find that like horrible. What an awful statistic. Oh my because God. even though we're radical here at the Radical Secular, I feel like I believe that I'm a tolerant person. Yeah, yeah, when yeah, it, yeah. I, when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, I mean, you have to be. I mean, that's my ethos, right? Is radical tolerance in some ways, right? Yeah. And so it's true because I could not live with myself. If I was curtailing the liberties of other people, I would feel terrible. I'd feel like a terrible person. Exactly. I, I couldn't. I mean, I, I feel badly about that in terms of the United States projecting its power overseas, let alone, right? Like, because that's something that we have to live with, but it's so far away. But like literally sitting here and knowing that like a, a, a group is being oppressed because of my choices or something that I voted for, I just don't even know how you live with yourself. I don't know how you do it. Yeah. The only people that I would oppress are Nazis, like full on fucking Nazis. <laughs> right, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But, and it turns out, here we go. Here's a continuing with the article. 65% mm -hmm. of atheists and 53% of Democrats who listed Christian fundamentalists as their least liked group are still willing to allow them to engage in three or more of these activities. That is a much higher proportion with tolerance than the sample overall. However, we found that a smaller proportion of white evangelicals would behave with tolerance toward atheists than the proportion of atheists who would behave with tolerance toward them. 13% of white evangelical Protestants selected atheists as their least liked group. Of those, 32% are willing to extend three or more of these rights to atheists. In fact, when we looked at all religious groups, atheists and agnostics were the most likely to extend rights to the groups that they least liked. That's kind of amazing to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's like, yes, yes. We have the total opposite image. Like in the media, if anybody talks oh about God. atheists, we're supposedly like horribly intolerant and it turns out we're not. Yeah, Whatever, like, like, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God, it's infuriating. It is. So, final paragraph of the article, conservative Christians believe their rights are in peril partly because that is what they're hearing quite explicitly mm -hmm. from conservative media, religious elites, partisan commentators, and some politicians, including the former president. The survey evidence suggests another reason too. Their fear comes from an inverted golden rule expect from others what you would do unto them. White evangelical Protestants express low levels of tolerance for atheists, which leads them to expect intolerance from atheists in return. That perception surely bolsters their support for Trump. They believe their freedom depends on keeping Trump and his party in power, end quote. <laughs> so this is probably <laughs> the least surprising result I could possibly imagine. <laughs> It's absolutely not shocking that a belief system that relies on threats of eternal damnation would also try to control society. But the important finding here is that contrary to the reality that atheists are the most tolerant group in American society is the belief by evangelicals that we would treat them as badly as they've treated us. I think we've kind of said it all, but if, if, there's, if, uh, if there's anything else you have to add to that, I'd love to hear it. Well, the, the, this is something that I like to say, and I said it recently on the Instagram feed, our Instagram feed, and that is equality feels like oppression when you're used to privilege. And that is what I think sums up in a lot of ways what conservative, Republican, white, evangelical Christians are feeling like right now. It's basically like you have spent the entirety of American existence on top winning and all of a sudden you're being asked to play by the same rules as everybody else and it is terrifying to them it is terrifying to them 
Yeah. Well, I want to tie this back to the main topic for our show today, in which we interview the author of Models and Citizens, which is a novel about a sci-fi dystopia in which America returns to a form of slavery in the distant future using clones who are not granted any human rights. It's a real allegory for our current political situation in which powerful people are genuinely trying to return our nation to an antebellum slave state. There's a lot of denial about this, but that's exactly precisely what's happening, and here's why. It turns out that the phenomenon of the inverted golden rule is also quite relevant to white supremacy. Mm -hmm. White Americans, many of whom also happen to be evangelical Christians, seem to have the same irrational fear that as demographic changes push them more and more toward minority status, a transition that will be complete sometime in the 2040s, that whites will be treated as badly in the future as whites have treated minorities in the past. This translates into white fragility, paranoia about white genocide, and the mad rush by white people to enshrine their shrinking white privilege into law. And that's what we saw today in the Senate. Yes, sir. On the ground, this means that white people are embracing fascism in droves. This means abandoning democracy by nullifying the Voting Rights Act and passing a torrent of state voter suppression laws, which we discussed at length in episode 38, Bloody Sunday for the People. White people forced to choose between living democratically in a majoritarian, pluralistic, multicultural society in which they no longer dominate and fascistic minority rule have broadly chosen the second option. This is the source of the big lie about the 2020 election, the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol, and the continued dominance of Trump in the Republican Party. White America has seen the writing on the wall and they have chosen to abandon their democracy rather than share it. And I want to ask you this, Christoph. I would suspect that just as atheists are broadly tolerant of religious people, black people are broadly tolerant of white people. Black people want equality, not revenge. So goes the cliche. And black people as a group, with a few exceptions possibly, would have no intention of oppressing or taking human rights away from white people. Do you agree? I think that is an absolutely correct statement. I don't think there's a bunch of black. There are, of course, extremists, but majority of black people are just like, no, we just want to have the same rights as everybody else. We just want to be treated this, the same as everybody else. We want our culture to be elevated to the level of everyone else's. We want to see at the table. And I think that is that's it. And I think that it's like look, when you've experienced oppression, like you really experienced it, you don't want that for others. You don't want that for other people. Yeah. Empathy is key. Mm -hmm. So with that background, I want to introduce our guest. Andrew Sweet was born in Houston, Texas to an African-American mother and a man of Irish descent less than 10 years after Loving versus Virginia and seven years after the lifting of anti-miscegenation laws in Texas. The unique experience that other mixed race children observe looking from the outside into all races drove Andrew's desire to understand his place in this world, which he did by reading philosophy and science fiction books. Andrew didn't truly understand the impact of words until 2016, when he witnessed someone completely unfit for leadership become the leader of the free world, accomplished by ongoing, widely repeated fictions. It was this moment that galvanized Andrew to use his own words to help elevate our understanding of our place in history. It was in 2016 that Andrew began his writing career, contributing to blogs, including the Radical Secular and others, as well as working on a novel and other works of fiction that examine the society in which we live through the safety of science fiction. Andrew has written three novels, two of which are out this year, Models and Citizens and Bodhi Rising, which launched on May 30th, 2021. Both are science fiction stories of the same dystopian future in which models or clones are the new slave cast. It is through this backdrop that Andrew merges our pasts and our present to create a future of sufficient depth to explore how we are, who we are, and why we do what we do. So without further delay, The Radical Secular presents 
Andrew Sweet. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. Appreciate being here. It is really great to have you here. And before we get started, I want to point out that you're the first guest to be on our show twice. And the first time you came on as Chuck Sweet to talk about your experience in the military. Uh, do you want to explain your pen name and why you chose it and which name you actually prefer? Uh, sure. Yeah, you can call me Chuck. Does it, it, I wasn't really picking a pen name so much as I just needed some way to separate my writing stuff and all the things that go with it, like my emails and, and all of that stuff from the rest of my life. Because I really do want to have a writing career and, and getting everything muddled together was just untenable. It, it was clear that was going to be a, a mistake. Andrew's my middle name, by the way, to answer your question. Oh, okay. Cool, cool. That's good to know. All right. Well, then let's discuss models and citizens. And there are going to be spoilers. If you are planning on reading this book and you don't want to hear spoilers, you should buy the book and read it first before you listen to this episode. And I want to say before we get started that this is a really expansive world, Andrew, that you built in the book with a lot of incredible detail and depth of characters. I've read a lot of sci-fi in my life, and you're right up there with the greats as far as I'm concerned as an author, uh, a real talent. So for a first book, I mean, it's amazing. As I was reading it, I was kind of visualizing this as a Netflix series that I was binge watching, mm. and I want to see this story on television. Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I wish I could say that it was all it was all me, but there are an amazing amount of people that have helped me in the process. I've got great beta readers. Uh, I guess number one is my wife. Uh, Holly is pretty amazing and is also one of my editors. So, Well, shout uh, out to Holly as well then. Yeah, shout out to her. It really is such a great book. And as a person like myself, right, Sean and I both like to write. I don't have a book published, but it's very inspirational to be like, oh, wow, this guy is putting together, you know, a friend and he's putting together really good content. And it's like, it's very, very inspiring. So uh, congratulations on the publishing and on the upcoming one as well. Thank you. Yeah. And I don't know if we have time on an hour show to go through everything in the book, but I'd like to just give our audience some broad brush strokes. The events of the book take place mainly in the year 2185. You do a brief setup for the book in your prologue, and I want to talk about three things people need to understand to understand what the story is about, and that is the orphan program, the Madison rule, and the human pride movement. These are all three thinly veiled references to America's past and present, and yet also very believable depictions of our future. Can you please discuss them? Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest one to tie back is the human pride movement. And that, mm. that was definitely a, a direct link to the white supremacist chaos that we see <laughs> in today's society. So that's, I think that came up, hopefully that came up across pretty clearly. Uh, the Madison rule, it's not so unbelievable. I mean, if you think about where we've been as a nation and just think to the Jim Crow South and, and the laws that we had on the books before that, the three-fifths compromise, let's start there. I mean, there's just a long history of, of rules like this that designate one class of citizen as being worth more or less than others. Um, so that, that was simple. The orphan program, I wasn't explicitly looking to the, to the past for this, but I, I do understand that there, there may be some parallels. This was a logical consequence of the 
globe right now is in a state of uh, declining population and that the rate of declining po- uh, population decline has increased. And if you've ever looked at economics at all, then you you know that our entire society, like the world society is based on, well, I don't have to tell you, but the world society is based on uh, essentially what amounts to a very complex Ponzi scheme. So something <laughs> would have to be done to shore up the fading population. And that's, that gave me a, a good entry point to kind of shove clones in there. Mm-hmm. So, but what the, can, can you explain just a little bit what the orphan program is? Sure. Yeah. So the orphan program is, I thought it was actually a pretty good program. Um, in order to encourage population growth, if you have a child, you just drive up to an orphanage somewhere and drop off your child and the, the government covers the cost of, of raising the child, putting the child through an education and turning that child into a productive member of society. So all you have to do is have the child and then you're done with your part of the obligation and you just drop it off and it's handled from there. It's interesting as an kind of an alternative to providing parents with childcare payments or a universal basic income or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting to me. I'm a fan of universal basic income, to be honest. It would be a I guess it comes down to how much you expect from your government. I mean, we have those conversations about universal basic income, and I don't know if we can even have that conversation. If you want to have a conversation about taking better care of our children, like the whole package, like the orphan program, something like that, that I, I see that as to be something that's pretty difficult to, to sell, but it, it definitely is an alternative, I would think. I don't know. And they got better education than others, right? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Part of the orphan program is they have, how do I want to say it, uh, associations with uh, a lot of the Ivy League schools. And so if you get into the orphan program, you basically, you've, you've, kind of, you've won the lottery uh, in life and you get to have an impact on society. In fact, one of the main characters, Torrent, is from the orphan program and you can tell pretty much how, how it's helped him, even though he's a little bitter about the experience. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to talk about the setting in the far distant future because 2185 seems to me almost to be too far into the future. And it's also kind of pretty optimistic that the US as we know it, and even the world as we know it, even your dystopian version of it is gonna be able to survive the coming climate changes and remain as an intact society. And I think we'd be pretty lucky to make it to 2085, let alone 2185. Yeah, I wonder that myself, Sean, (laughs) I do. Um, Was there a reason for your choice? Uh, Yeah, so 2185 was far enough that things, I feel like if we do make it, I I feel like this is a pivotal point in history. And if we we make it past this moment, then I have confidence that we'll be around to 2185 and beyond. Even as a nation, I can see that happening if we can turn the right corner. Um, So I picked it to be far enough to pose that question. Like you really don't know. And and I didn't want the world to be so different as a lot of the science fiction I read now is is way far in the future, like Mm -hmm. several hundred years to thousands of years. I didn't want it to be so distant as to be unrelatable. And I wanted the characters to be like recognizable as today's society, but I also wanted it to be different enough to have the flexibility to to move the pieces around and so that you could see how we could reasonably get to this point. I want it to be as realistic as I could get it based on today as a starting point. And that seemed like it felt right. 2085 seemed like the right place to be. I don't have a more concrete answer than that. (laughs) You know, it's, it's interesting, Andrew, 
because you posted on our blog uh, a while back, the At the Precipice of Change. And as you are talking, and it's a great blog post, as you're talking about, you and about if we get past this moment in our time, right? And I kind of felt like that was a bit of the theme of that essay that you wrote, is that like we are sort of, and we also talked about this when we talked to Justine and that we're in this incredible pivotal moment right now. And it is hard to be optimistic. It's optimistic, right? In some sense, right? The future that you've depicted there is grotesque in so many ways. And there's these references to these massive climate shifts, right? That have that the desertification and the cities being swallowed up, right? New Orleans being completely devastated and literally at the bottom of the ocean, right? So it is not necessarily that optimistic, but nevertheless, we made it, right? And so there's right. something that the human Humanity made it. So there's something to be said there, at least, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and all of that stuff. And it's interesting because I, I almost started to, to write about that transition period, mm-hmm. but instead I let it go and came in after like all of the badness had been done and we'd already gone through. I don't know if you caught it, but there's also a fascist global domination takeover that happened during that time period that the United mm-hmm. States is moving out of as well. So it's mm-hmm. not like we totally avoided everything, but we just did manage to come out on top. Survived. Survive, I guess. (laughs) It's interesting because I just, this is a little digression, but I just read an article talking about how in Saudi Arabia, there are records of civilizations that were there as recently as six or 8,000 years ago that were, you know, they were cattle farmers. It was lush and green where there's desert now. So we've already gone through lots of climate changes in our past that have displaced and ended and changed civilizations radically. I think about the United States. I mean, the reason that it's so believable for me to have a desert cut through the Midwest is because we have all the conditions right. I mean, we had that the mm-hmm. whole the Dust Bowl after the Great Depression. The, a lot of that was man-made. Like ninety percent of that was man-made because we decided we want people where there really weren't supposed to be people and deforested a bunch of stuff. It's it's interesting. We do it to ourselves, and mm-hmm. we do it over and over and over all again. Of it. All, all of it. it. <laughs> Let's shift gears a little bit to the characters. And I want to talk about the first scene in the book that's, you know, it starts out very traumatic. Your protagonist, Harper, her parents uh, are involved in a murder-suicide and it changes her life forever. In that scene, you also introduce the concept that we assume a lot of people or most people in the future are on some sort of mood-stabilizing drugs that are automatically delivered with medical implants. And then you also describe a weapon known as a proton rifle. Can you talk about any of those things? All of those three things. Yeah, sure. Um, so the mood stabilizing drugs was a lot of fun to think through. And there's a, I don't know if you've ever read the um, Justice of Mercy, I think it's the name of it. There's a Anne Leckie, I think is her name. So I think there was a little bit of that and some of the stuff that she writes. And so I took that idea and I was like, okay, well, how would we really apply this? And I think a lot of people I know and myself have dealt with things like anxiety and and high stress. And it just seems, why not? Like, why wouldn't we have metal complaints to handle some of these problems, to keep up with these irregularities? It it just makes sense. Is it a commentary at all on antidepressants in general? (laughs) Not really, but kind of. I don't know if I have a stance on antidepressants, but I do know that I think we're bags of chemicals. Mm-hmm. And so if we can do something about controlling how those chemicals course through us, and we can do that in, automate, in a way that makes sense, then that's fine. I, don't, I think that antidepressants or any drugs to treat kind of mood and anxiety uh, disorders work 
when you use them correctly and we don't uh, get carried away or get too dependent on them. But if if you have something like a medical implant or something that controls that for you, then it takes that possibility of abuse and, and other things away, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And so why'd you start the book with a tragedy like that? That's a good question. The reason I started the book that way is because of... It's because of Harper. She's got a backstory and some of it comes out in the book, but not all of it does. Um, she's traveled through life largely ambivalent and largely unaware of what was going on in the world around her. And so she ends up in college. And so she eventually was going to be thrust into this world that she had managed to stay on the sidelines from and now thrust right in the middle of it. But what she didn't realize, I guess, is, or what I didn't realize when I started was that she was already there. Like mm-hmm. at, when I f- first started writing the book, her father wasn't part of the human pride movement and her mother wasn't, her mother's name wasn't Ayushi. <laughs> it's just these, it kind of made sense that when I thought about who she was and who she became and some of the conflicts that she was ex- expressing or that she was uh, running into in life, that's who her father was. And also when you look at climate changes, some of the things that were going on around them, kind of forcing the desperation of the population and her father struggling to survive in this bar that he's, it's his life's dream. This, he didn't want it to be a rundown dive, right? Mm-hmm. He wanted to have, they came from New York. I don't know if that was clear in the book. They, he wanted to have a fine establishment. And when climate change took his dreams, basically, he eventually so turned that, into yeah. a bitter, angry person. Yeah. So that's what led this intergenerational trauma that you're sort of establishing there and how climate change contributes to that. That's something that I didn't totally understand. So I'm glad to know that. And and the proton rifle, is that just something that you came up with or is there a backstory to that too? Uh, It's lame. (laughs) <laughs> I'll tell you that. Since you <laughs> well, it was a, it was effective in the story. <laughs> no, I, I love how it ended up. But the first draft I sent to my dad, who's published uh, some stuff of his own in the in the past, and he sent it back and he said, "Really, they have rifles? It wasn't a proton rifle." He said, "Really, it's 2185, and they still have rifles?" Because I, I I think it was like a 22 <laughs> or something. So it's just really embarrassing, honestly. <laughs> so then I was like, "Okay, you're right. <laughs> I should probably change that." <laughs> I, well, you know, it's interesting because you do see a lot of sci-fi, even like The Expanse, where they're they're yeah. shooting guns. I mean, they're, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, you yeah. Know, even like, though it's I, a few. That's the same thing. Firefly, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, popped right in my head was The Expanse because I've been like pretty much obsessed with that show recently. But but yeah, they're like firing bullets. I mean, they're like really like high tech guns. You can tell, right? Like they do stuff that our guns can't do, but they're still just shooting projectiles. <laughs> and I also, incidentally, this is a, kind of a digression with The Expanse, right? There's like no shields. There's no nothing, right? No. It's just like, it's just space and bullets. And so it's I really love that serious. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. But the Proton Rifle is an interesting take. I minded immediately of, of Captain Proton from, uh, from, yes, from Voyager. Voyager. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> no, I hadn't even made that connection. I don't know. It's just, it's whatever. <laughs> That's just my comment. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about the other main character who, I don't know, maybe he's the protagonist, um, Ordell. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he is a clone. He's a construction worker and he's on the run. And a couple of the questions I have about the guy is, first of all, is he black? Um, are clones in general black or are there clones of all races? And what was your intention between these two lead characters? Who's really the lead? Right. So when I first wrote the book, Ordell was a side character. He was, he didn't get much screen time. It was really about Harper. And, and what I was trying to show was how we as humans get into these ambivalent states 
and how minor inconveniences knock us off of the road to actually accomplishing the change that we're trying to achieve. And so for her, the minor, the inconvenience was um, her relationship with Torrent and the possibility that she might actually have something of a normal life, which has been interrupted by Ordell. And so Ordell didn't have much screen time, but the more I looked at Ordell, the more I realized his story is really important because we need to see both sides because we need to understand how him being basically an escaped slave, how her ambivalence impacts him. I'm not sure if that really made it through as clearly as I had intended originally, but that's why he has so much time. So if you ask me who the main character is, I think from Bodhi Rising, I think it's got to be Ordell, I would say, Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't always that way. Um, as far as his race, I try not to give him a race because I want people to get to self-identify with him. And if I'd given him an explicit like race, I gave him some like features that could be considered vaguely ethnic, but my intent was for people to get inside of his mind and identify and kind of follow him on the mental journey that he's taking while he's dealing with the possibility that he could die at you know any minute, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, a little bit, because I'm also just wondering, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the outline, but because I wanted to ask you about the racial makeup of the world in 160 years or whatever. Okay. Like what's happened to America? Is America really a multicultural society at that point or have white supremacists won or like what's going on here? Uh, So you mentioned, I think that Ayushi is uh, not in the conversation, but I think in the notes, um, Ayushi's origin. So Ayushi's actually from India or her grandparents are from India. So that's how she came into the country. Um, But the makeup, the racial makeup, I I was, I left kind of vague. There were a lot more, if you'll notice, like nobody really, it didn't really bother anybody that she was mixed and the relationship, like none of the conversations about that Ayushi and her husband had at the beginning had anything to do with race. And that didn't really play a role. And it was, the idea was that the clones had largely supplanted race as the delineation between the people. So the, nobody thought about that anymore. And that's kind of like what some people, I've had some conversations recently that popped that back into the front of my mind. I was talking to somebody about why we should care about like reparations for black people. Why should we should help? I'm half black. Why we should help like black people that are being treated unfairly in society, because if we help them, then now the Hispanics are going to be the new black people or something like that. So I kind of took that and wove it in here a little bit. Like the clones are are the new like underdog race here. Um, Right. Yeah. That is, I think, very powerful. And I keep referencing various science fiction films and books, but I think it's important here because this is data, right? This is holograms, the doctor and Voyager, right? This is basically like, yes, we human beings we get we can get over race at some point, but then we just find another class of slaves, right? To dehumanize. And then there's right, even in those things, right? In those stories, right? You have the doctor explicitly going to be a advocate for holographic people's rights. Like that's sort of what he's now about. And so I think that was, I picked up on that. I thought that was very powerful that now it's like, look, these people are not 
and and this is even more powerful, right? Because a hologram is a hologram, and and an android is an android. But these folks are—they are clones, but they're still, in a sense, they're human beings, right? They obviously have feelings, they have experiences, mm-hmm. and they are beyond second-class citizens. They're literally slaves. And the discussion about the underground railroad or the the railroad sort of sort of reference is, mm-hmm. seems to me to be a direct right sort of analog to mm-hmm. that. Anyway, I thought it was really masterfully done, and and that touched me. I think touched me pretty deeply. I thought. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. And I want to just talk a little bit about when you were coming up with this backstory about cloning, were clones originally just used to stave off population losses or were they always created to be slaves? So the Mattis rules is what is, I think, answers some of that. No, they weren't originally slaves. Like, it, And they're actually, if you read between the lines, they're actually clones that were in society that mm. nobody knew were there because before the Mattis rule happened, nobody, they, they didn't mark the clones in any way. So, and that's one of the reasons they started tattooing them with the barcode on the wrist is because they kept losing them uh, in society because they, they look just like, literally just like anyone else. They're biologically identical. Their DNA yeah, is right. the same. You know? <laughs> exactly. And this, this is what comes down to where what's kind of behind reading between the lines of all of this is the dualistic idea that we're spiritually more than just a copy of another human, right? Mm-hmm. And so that somehow mm-hmm. cloning is not a real person. Like even though you, you still have cells, your DNA is the same, everything's the same, you're not a real person. And there wasn't too much talk in the book about the religion of the time, but was there some religious component to this idea that these clones were second class? Um, yeah, I'm kind of glad you asked that because I'm working on that book right now. <laughs> you are? <laughs> so, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone on this podcast anyway. It's definitely the religious right, like whole that whole thing has just found a new scapegoat. So the, it's just completely morphed. And now if my uh, book that we're not really going to talk about here is, is about somebody that's deep within a church and you get some of like, what's the, the church's stance? And the church is still a really big player at this point in, in history. Just looking to the future and knowing who we are as humans, I don't see that changing in the very near future. I want to say something about hierarchy, um, Uh just to respond to Christoph, what you were saying earlier. I didn't really think about hierarchy until Octavia Butler, until I read her Mm -hmm. uh, Xenogenesis series. Uh, If you get a chance to read Little Spirit, that's a a great series. And and she really kind of lays it out there in her first book about how like human hierarchy is is something that that we can't shake. And there are these like enlightened aliens (laughs) that are trying to help us along, but they're like, hey, you guys are broken. I don't know. I don't know what we can do for you. We talk about that kind of stuff a lot here, as you know, like the hierarchy problem is like, if you leave human beings to their own devices, this is what we do, right? It is what we do. It's a problem. It is a huge problem Mm -hmm. because it's not like everyone in the hierarchy gets equal treatment. Like the hierarchies are sort of inevitable. Are they going to be based on something that's actually like, right, I'm actually better at this than you, or is it just, I'm more happen to be more powerful than you, right? I just happen to be the right race. Like those arbitrary hierarchies, right? That is what we like That's rail again, yep. you know, right? That's the problem. Well, it's interesting because if you have self-organization, if you just let people kind of work it out and figure it out, you know, there are people who are natural leaders and natural followers and all that kind of thing. And that's not what we're talking about here. Right. We're talking about manipulation (laughs) where people are jumping the line, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. people who don't know what they're doing and aren't leaders uh, manage to get into those positions. 
and they fuck it up for everyone. And there is a tremendous drive to submit on the part of human beings. And oh, that's yeah. something that without oh, that, yeah. I mean, this would never work, right? <laughs> <People> go, <laughs> you, know. you couldn't have a society, right? Um, right? Your shirt today, Sean, by the way, trees in 445, that is a perfect, perfect uh, reference to a person who who has no business leading anything, oh, but God. here he <laughs> is, there he is, right? There Literally is, leading, right? The, leading the most powerful nation and now leading the most destructive coalition still in the most powerful nation on the planet. Trying to undermine our government basically from the outside right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I want to get back to talking a little bit more about the characters and as your story unfolds, we find Harper becoming increasingly drawn into both a personal battle to save her friend Ordell from being captured and into the larger battle for civil rights for clones. This is complicated by the fact that Ordell was Harper's dead mother's lover. But is Harper considered white in your story? I guess she could be mixed race, but what's the racial landscape like in this dystopian future America? Has America by then achieved a sort of multicultural uniformity? How would you compare Harper's awakening to white people's awakening to the idea that black lives matter? Is Harper's personal Ooh. journey what we could consider <laughs> achieving wokeness in the late 22nd century? Ah, good. Wow, there's a lot packed in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you made me think, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, good. I guess I'll start with the, the makeup. I think I touched on that a little bit, but I think that I don't consider it to be a necessarily a strongly multicultural society because there's still these pockets of, of segregated communities. Ayushi, I think, is the only one that's like Indian in her area, but it's not necessarily something that people strive for or, can, or concern themselves with anymore at this point. Theoretically, we have gotten past some of that, un unfortunately, for clones who have supplanted some of the aggression of humans. Mm -hmm. um, as far as Harper's wokeness, I don't think she's all that woke by the end. So this is unfortunate, and I apologize for saying this, but this is the way that I think about it. Um, I think Harper eventually runs away. I mean, if you're listening this far, you've got some pretty decent spoilers already. So <laughs> I don't mind telling you that part. She just can't handle it. And so, and I think that is kind of a lot of what we see with, with people. And I think that that manifests as like when you're unplugging or you want to talk about happy things only now, and you're ignoring that there's other stuff that happens in the world. That's essentially what happens to Harper. She's overwhelmed with the fact that all this stuff is actually happening in the world that she was oblivious to before. And she tries to escape from it basically. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think that can be a rough equivalent to wokeness, especially if you consider how transient the sensation of quote unquote wokeness is um, in community. Like right now, we couldn't have these ebbs and flows of outrage without people finding their wokeness and losing it again. Mm -hmm. So it's one of these things where you, people don't stay focused on the problem. People would rather not deal with it. I would rather not deal with that. I'd rather not be writing the, the articles that I write, not be fighting people on social media. I would rather not be in that position. But I mean, that's kind of a, I don't know if I even got close to answering your question. I think I, I slipped into a rant there. I, sorry about that. Well, no, I think you did. I mean, because yeah. really what it comes down to is how much is she willing to give up? And the answer exactly. is at the end is she's not willing to pay the total price that she would need exactly. to pay, right? All right. Let me talk about the clones themselves a little bit. Uh, they're grown in tanks and then they experience what you call a second birth at age 13 or whatever. And you know, they eat different food or they have their own little drinks that they have. And, but somehow they seem like they get pretty well educated. They're pretty decently taken care of. 
Uh, Ordell seems like a smart guy and he's deeply introspective. He's got really deep human emotions. How do clones develop so normally since their maturation process seems to be kind of more like Borg than any kind of normal <laughs> human upbringing or socialization? Um, they do it for themselves. And, mm. and if you look at like our history of, of oppressed people, you can't take community away from people. Even, I mean, you can try and you can make some headway in, in demeaning people. But, if, but at the end of the day, the community of clones, of models, they're still a community and they recognize themselves as a community. So they take it upon themselves to achieve some sort of normalcy or, or at least something that passes for normalcy in their community. And I don't think I dealt with the, the actual cloning community as much in this book. Also, there are two kind of training camps that teach how to do your job. And part of that is that you do have to be able to interact in society. So they do get some training to, to be able to integrate uh, that convocation and didactics. That's what those are. Convocation is training and didactics is like your gateway out into the world kind of. So all of that comes together to, to create an environment where, yeah, there's culture there. And they progress that culture as much as they can, but there are limitations. I don't know if you get Ordell, but he's got that mental hangup where he's also got that conflict of like, am I really this? Like, because clones are not even human. They don't have feelings. I mean, you might recognize a lot of these stereotypes, right? So, and he's internalized that message. And so that's kind of what you're talking about is him being okay in the world is he's okay enough to interact with it. But I don't think I would say that he's okay necessarily. There's there's a lot of stuff that's packed into it that that's, he's got to deal with. That's super powerful, man. Those two things that you mentioned, right? That last thing you talked about is sort of internalizing that message. That is something that we talked about a lot last week. We talked about how white supremacy, like black folks, right? Like black folks, marginalized folks in general, right? Internalize the narrative. And this is something that I think like people that are in the majority find hard to wrap their minds around. Like why would a black person sell themselves out or sell out other black people. Why, how could that possibly happen? And it's because these messages are, we are all operating in the same system. And it, it infects even the people who are abused by it. And so I think that's a really interesting sort of reference. Also, another thing you mentioned too is the community, and I just wanted to jump on that for a minute, is the sort of community for clones. And that is really also a thing that happens for marginalized communities as well, right? Sometimes that actually makes a, a very unique and strong community. In fact, that's typically what happens, right? Think about Jewish communities. Think about the African-American community with its own unique culture that develops as a result of that, almost in, in resistance, in, in defiance of of the majority culture. And you see this among gay folks as well in the LGBTQ community, right? There's the pride, there's all this sort of things and it becomes a badge to be different ends up becoming the badge to not be part of it, to embrace that ends up becoming part of one's identity. So I'm being interested to see if that happens in for the clones going forward or like, and how you think about that. Do you see that community sort of strengthening into something along those lines in the future? Um. I'm getting into that now as well because mm -hmm. I'm finishing because Libera is the third book in the series. And that's where I get into a lot of uh, really kind of wading into what's going on in the cloning community. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of support. And what happens in that is the community definitely does form around one of the, the characters and she's trying to like live 
her life and, and protect her child. And it takes an entire community to do it because you have to conceal these things from the people that are in charge, right? right? I mean, how do you go through an entire pregnancy without somebody finding out about it? And I think this is the sort of thing that does, like, like you were saying, this like coming behind and supporting each other is something definitely that happens in, in marginalized groups. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to read in your next chapter or book uh, of, of the story. But here's something interesting that I thought about, and that is that, you know, when Ordell is trying to find the Underground Railroad or the Freedom Underground, as it's called in the book, he's trying to head to Canada. And at the end of the book, Harper heads to Canada, right? And so there's this <laughs> seems to be, okay, how do we all know that Canada is still going to be there as this shining beacon of freedom where they don't have these human rights violations? Because that's the same as in The Handmaid's Tale, right? right we yeah. always have this ideal that our northern Canada. neighbor is going to be waiting there for anybody who wants to get out of all of our... I mean, to, I don't know. I like the idea of having a place to go, but at the same time, you know, you don't think the U.S. is going to invade that place and just make quick work of it? Right. And, and Margaret Atwood's defense, she did kind of flee to Canada. So there's that. But, um, <laughs> that's a very good question. And no, it depends. So it, it was convenient for me because the world had just gone through, had just emerged from a totalitarian regime, like a global like totalitarian takeover that started in the United States, actually. So they just broken free from that. So this is a period where the nations were still in a bit of a process of rebuilding. So Canada isn't the promised land. I mean, I, I think when, when Harper gets to Canada, one of the things that she realizes, well, this is in, in the second book, I don't know how much I should give away, but one of the things that she realizes <laughs> is that the people that she's running from are not just in the United States. I mean, th mm -hmm. these people are everywhere. So it's because, you know, it's human nature, right? Even right now, you think you can go to Canada and get free treatment? Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, but, but if you're going to tell me there are no white supremacists in Canada, that's a little, yeah, no, that's not the way that works. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, okay, great. That's good to get that clarified. And, and I want to touch on something now that's personal. And you must have considered this writing because it's kind of like playing God when you control all aspects of your character's lives. But I kept wondering as I read, it seems like there's a lot of sexual tension between Harper and Ordell who are living together. It's kind of taboo because he's been... Harper's mother's lover, but now Harper's mother is dead. So both of them are super lonely and hurting. They get very intimate in other ways as Harper takes care of him when he's sick and he's injured. He's got a snake bite. They seem extremely devoted to each other. They might even love each other. And yet you didn't go there. And so why? Um, Ordell. Ordell was probably the biggest part of that because in Ordell's head, no matter what was else was going on, he was madly in love with Ayushi mm -hmm. and to the point where like, I don't even know if he was hallucinating or if he was actually having visitation. I couldn't tell you, but he was definitely seeing her and he's just so far gone that this, that, that type of relationship just, it, it didn't feel like it would work. I mean, I thought mm -hmm. about it for, for a little while, mm -hmm. but it just, that didn't seem like him as a character. And, yeah. And as you said, he's damaged yeah. anyway. Well, okay, bounty hunters eventually catch up with Ordell. There's a huge reward offered for runaway models. At first, Harper considers trying to raise the money to buy him back from the bounty hunters, but she can't manage it. And this is where the book kind of comes, there's this complex chain of events involving publicity and everything goes nuts. And there's the possibility of this super high profile court case in which the Madison rule 
is going to be potentially challenged at the Supreme Court. Fearing the end of their business model and the loss of the slave labor and all that, the corporations involved, in this case, Emergent Biotechnology, proposes a settlement that will grant Ordell his freedom, where Harper can become his guardian, but that sidesteps the larger issue because now he feels he's really conflicted. Now, that was really, I think that was really well thought out, you know, the difficult choice that he, he was forced to make there. And I wondered if you could talk about it. Yeah, that that was interesting. I I didn't know that it was going to go that way. I mean, like a lot of this does come down to Ordell because once you find the characters, then a lot of that kind of dictates a lot of what happens. But from the outside looking in, I think, I mean, that that seems to be a big problem, right? Because if you wanted to, I'm thinking back to like the olden days, like we did have, there were challenges to like some of the slavery statutes and they didn't necessarily go anywhere, but why not? Like what stops these things from progressing? And it's interference, it's power. It's like, you just don't have, I mean, you don't have the power being like somebody that's an enslaved person. You don't have the power to represent yourself. So the only way that you can succeed is if someone else steps in for you. And that was Harper. Ordell eventually had to come to the conclusion that he was, I think his mental calculus was that he wasn't going to win. I mean, at this point, one of their lawyers was in, in the hospital. I don't know if this came, came out in the book or not, but missing. And he'd already been uh, chased by bounty hunters. He'd been stalked while he was at home. I mean, at some point you, you have to realize that, you know, maybe you're not going to be able to do this successfully. Yeah. And I don't know how often that happens in, in life when we're trying to overcome some of these types of things at this level. Well, certainly for someone like that, I mean, he's already traumatized. By the way, I'm not quite clear on why he was running in the first place, but he's already he, been running. He's been running. He's been traumatized. And now he's just trying to he's trying to save himself, I guess. Yeah, uh, he, he wasn't running. So what really happened was, I mean, he was. <laughs> how do I explain this? Uh, so he got out. He accidentally ran. So he went to warn Ayushi that the people that were after him probably knew about their relationship and were probably after her too. And he showed up too late. And then you can imagine that emotional gut punch, Mm -hmm. right? And so, so what actually happened was he went down an emotional spiral there and he didn't care if he lived or died for part of the novel. And then by the time he did finally decide to care with Harper's help, then it was kind of almost too late. There are already bounty hunters out from there's a reward of X amount of dollars. And then at that point, he's he decided that because of his relationship with Ayushi and because of what he learned from Harper, that maybe he did want a little bit more out of life. Maybe there, maybe going back. So he kind of made the decision a little later. Um, I don't yeah. know if that kind of clears that up or not. It was interesting because as the book reaches its climax, we know we can see these companies aren't messing around. I mean, the, the power is just coming down from above and there's assassination attempts on the main characters, death threats, hate crimes. They break in, they graffiti the apartment. All kinds of stuff is going on here to let these people know that they're in severe danger. And then Harper is charged with theft of property because she harbored Ordell. Right. And so that reminded me, of course, of the Fugitive Slave Act. Was that what you were going for there? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I looked that up before I did that. I was like, could, really? That could, because it, it sounds asinine, doesn't it? It like sounds you're, horrible. You're harboring someone and now you're charged with stealing them. And yeah. Yeah. You know what? It was as I'm thinking about this and we talk about 
corporations and the power. And we talk about right now where you have folks who don't want to go back to work because they're they're these minimum wage jobs are like fifteen dollars an hour, sure, but still, right? It, it's still less than making for the governments, but whatever. But the bottom line is that like these Republican governors, though, right, have turned the screws basically because the, these big organizations need their slave labor force back, right? And that is the power of the corporation. And by the way, during the American slave trade and slavery era, that was why slavery continued. It had everything to do with capitalism. Like mm-hmm. that is why 100%. Like, right. It's not because those industrialists up North cared about those black people down South. They were like, they wanted to eliminate competition. So they're like, look, let's back the people who will get rid of that cheap We have slaves Mm -hmm. up here, but we pay them a little bit, but they don't literally pay them at all. And so they're out competing us. And so let's kill them that way. So let's be clear about what's always driving this, which is a handful of guys, and they're almost always guys, right, Mm -hmm. who are just making hand over fist and don't want to stop making hand over fist. That's what this always comes down to. And that's what I'm hearing in that book as well. Absolutely. And I think if you look throughout history, I don't think it, it starts and ends with what you said. I mean, if you agree, our agree. tools for oppressing people are just, it always comes down to where the power is. And, and if money is power, then that's where it's going to come from. Absolutely. Great point. Great point. Yeah. And that brings me to my last question. We've seen the story now through the eyes of people on the street level who are basically the victims of the system. But we haven't heard too much about the string pullers and the shot callers at the top and their intrigue and what they're doing. You know, the people who hire the lawyers, the people who are making the clones. So do you go into that in the next two books? Yes. Um, uh, Yes. Although they're a little bit more detached from what's going on in the day to day. This book was intentionally ground level because I want people to think about how do I react in this situation? What happens to me? Like if this was me, if you start at the top, then then who's going to identify with the billionaire? I mean, I don't know. Not me. <laughs> not me. Wouldn't either. know what that kind of money looks like. So, but <laughs> yeah, the next one is going to be, we're spending a lot more time at the top with some of the quote unquote movers and shakers. And we get a little bit more of a perspective of how they think about the industry. And like we were talking about here, I mean, at the end of the day, it does come down to numbers and you mm-hmm. get to see that very clearly, I think in the next book. Cool. Super enjoyed the conversation. Is there anything you want to say about your work or your future writing plans or anything else? Uh, I think I think I managed successfully to sneak a lot of that in already. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just but wanted I, to I give do, you the opportunity, the last word. <laughs> I do want to say that I appreciate uh, you guys having me back again. That's great. And the work that, that you do is amazing and staying on top of it and, and clarifying some of the points of, of what's going on, like what we're experiencing, what we're living through right now. I feel like a lot of people don't recognize the significance of the moment. And I think that's a real problem. And you're working to bring clarity to that. So definitely appreciate you and what you do. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. And I think I can speak for everyone who's read your work that we can't wait to read your other two books and see what you come up with next. So thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Christoph. Wow. Christoph, I think that was quite amazing. I feel like I've been on a real journey through the mind of a great sci-fi writer, really great world building on Andrew's part too. And I, I just can't wait if to, to see if this goes to TV series. I'll give you the last word about the interview. What's your final takeaway? Well, look, uh, Andrew is 
really a great writer. And I really hope that everyone goes out and, and reads the book and, and goes ahead and comments on Amazon as well and make a comment because he, it's worth your time. I, I am just really taken by how well, sometimes explicitly, sometimes subtly, the book is a, a really interesting allegory for not only for the moment that we find ourselves in and the future of our civilization, but also the experience of dealing with uh, conflicts as an individual, the complexities of dealing with that and dealing with oppression and dealing with other people's oppression, right? Like I, I talked at the top that I've been pissed off this week at white people. And, and when I listened to him talk about the experience of Harper trying to do the right thing, being afraid, et cetera, that really touched me. And I think I think those kind of stories and those kind of allegories are what makes Andrew's writing very powerful. I'm looking forward to the next book. For sure. I mean, we just see the best, the very best social commentary comes through fiction. And That's right. All right. Well, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out the radicalsecular.com and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at the radicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.